September 2008 is a really long time ago now. So long ago that Taylor Swift was still a country artist. We were both young when I first saw you. I closed my eyes and the flashback starts. I'm standing there. For many people at that time, their biggest fear was that the Hadron Collider would suck us all into a black hole when it was turned on for the first time. And most of us still had faith that the money in our bank accounts would be there when we went looking for it. At 7am came an unprecedented package of state support for the banks in response to the turmoil. The government's two-year guarantee covers six Irish-owned banks and building societies. Allied Irish Bank and Bank of Ireland, Anglo-Irish Bank and Irish Life and Permanent, which owns Permanent TSB, as well as building societies EBS and Irish Nationwide. When the government made a bold statement on the 30th of September, intended to send out a signal that there would be no home for chaos in this country, Ennis Steinman man, Alex McKnight, was working in the city of London for an investment manager. It was a Christmas and birthday present to all come at once. It really was, thank you very much, this is too much. Really, this is too much. Were you able to make a lot of money for your clients on that day? There was money made at that stage. There wasn't huge amounts of money made. In his office, the bank guarantee was cause for celebration. The government have just said explicitly, they're there, come hell or high water effectively. They have taken this on government balance sheet. That means we have the Irish government's blessing to look for opportunities in anything that they are related to. But Alex was suffering from divided loyalties. He was Irish too, and he knew more than most about the true nature of the dumpster fire that his native country was trying to smother. The Irish taxpayers and stuff, I felt they had been poorly served uh, at the time by the embracing of all of that debt. It didn't need to happen, to my mind. His job specifically was to use his Irish connections to get the inside track on everything related to Irish bank debt. And what he knew was that anyone who was unlucky or foolhardy enough in September 2008 to be holding subordinate debt in Irish banks, junior bondholders, was never expecting the Irish taxpayer to go down on bended knee. I'm playing in an institutional environment, in an institutional market, and uh, for want of a better term, it's grown-ups and grown-up rules, and if you lose money in that, tough look, walk on. But we didn't tell them to walk on. In a whirlwind romance, we took out the ring and promised to love, honour and burden share. Taylor Swift can't be our soundtrack, though. We are singing the blues. Well, we're singing the blues until we see if there is a better tune to describe what happened to us ten years ago. This programme comes not to bury unpleasant memories, but to sift through them one more time, ten years on, to see what we should have learned to get a fix on what happened so that we can fix what might be just about to happen. 
and to see if there is a more appropriate national theme tune, one that might not be the blues, but for now, the blues will do. Because a large part of our story about ourselves for the last 10 years has been the monumental folly of it all. How many people at the time thought that the most disastrous decision ever made by an Irish government was actually a really good idea? It's uh, much more radical, much more direct, gets to the heart of the issue. And in the circumstances, extreme circumstances globally, that's probably well warranted. But we're all very wise long after the fact about how much the bank guarantee was always going to end up costing the country. But on that morning, as it was announced, just about everyone expressing an opinion publicly said that it was just what the doctor ordered. There was a necessity for us to consider very quickly what Ireland could do to shore up confidence in our own system and make sure our financial institutions have access to funds. And almost nobody anywhere believed that we would end up writing a cheque for greedy and incompetent bankers. While in the short term it's averted any type of banking collapse, nobody's quite sure what the long-term consequences of this enormous deal will be. David Murphy, RT News, Dublin. The main opposition party rode in behind the move. This is the right thing to do, and I believe this is the right thing to do. As did Sinn Féin. And it seemed that there was more or less a national consensus about the most important decision that any government will ever take in all of our lifetimes. But when the whole country is running in one direction, there is one place that you can always turn to for a bit of cranky, contrary opinion. 1850 715 815 Hello, good afternoon and you're very welcome to Liveline. Andrew Butler holds the distinction of being the first person in the country to publicly say, whoa there, what are we getting ourselves into? Andrew, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joel. How are you keeping? You're one of the first people to contact us this morning. Go ahead, your your view, please. Well, I woke, woke up this morning to the same news we all did, the top news story. The guarantee had been announced at 7am. Andrew was on air at a quarter to two. I'm just kind of astounded the way it was done with such speed, an overnight decision done in secret. There was no convenient at all, there was no... Andrew told Joe Duffy that not only was the Emperor not wearing any clothes, but that his threads were going to cost the Emperor's subjects absolutely billions. Why was this a special case? Why, where was the fire like? Okay, Larry is on the line. Larry, 1857... How did Andrew Butler know what he knew when nobody else was saying it? I called him back 12 years on. I'm still the same person I was. Uh, Basically, um... I am an uh, IT contractor. He had no background in finance. What he knew about the country's finances, he had mostly picked up from an eclectic mix of clients. So, i.e., I mean, I do work for doctors, financiers, insurance brokers. And Andrew's clients talked. It sounds like some of them may have been patronising the IT guy crawling around under their desks. You'd get a lot of free advice, let's say. So people would tell you, you should get on this gig. And the big gig everyone was telling people to get on was property, investment, holiday homes. You know, I mean, money is sloshing around there. Pick up some of it, buy an asset, buy another asset, leverage off each one. 
you'll be retired by the time you're 45, 50 with a pot of corn and, and uh, life will be good. And when everyone is doing the same thing, it's nearly always a good time to do something different. And Andrew could see crucifying levels of personal debt in every home and business that he walked into. Plus, he had a pretty deep-rooted distrust of bankers and their honeyed words, stemming from a family financial crisis in the 80s. People had not seen the other side of the bank, i.e. calling in the debt. So when the bank said that they were properly capitalised and didn't need any of the Irish taxpayers' money, Andrew wondered out loud on Liveline if they were telling the truth. What are the banks going to do for the ordinary individual now that the taxpayer backed them to the hilt? What are they doing for the ordinary people? Where Andrew was guessing, from behind his bank of screens in the city of London, Clare man Alex McKnight knew a lot more. There were a lot of eyes cast at Anglo. It wasn't just Alex. Everyone outside of Ireland in his line of business, buying bank debt, was giving Anglo-Irish a wide berth. I think the surefire way of losing your job was by buying subordinated debt in Anglo. Subordinated debt, the infamous junior bondholders, a combination of investors, speculators, hedge funds and pension funds who had bought the riskiest class of Anglo-Irish debt and by early 2008 really weren't expecting to ever see too much, if any, of their money back. And the chatter in the City of London in the summer of 2008 was don't become a junior bondholder in Irish bank debt. My job was to buy debt, and the one thing you knew not to do was buy that. Alex and his colleagues were assuming that there would be some sort of guarantee of the banks by the Irish government, but they never dreamed that it would go as far as guaranteeing the junior debt as well. At the time, the general feeling was that, you know, Anglo was gone. Bank of Ireland and Allied Irish would make their way through purely to keep the financial system going. In the summer of 2008, anybody in your role who was buying or becoming a junior bondholder in Anglo-Irish Bank would have gotten a rap on the knuckles and shown the door. Yeah, if you were buying Irish bank paper, you would have only have been buying what we call the senior debt, so the highest level that is. Was that in the expectation, Alex, that junior bondholders of Irish bank debt were going to get burned at some point in the not-too-distant future? Yeah, the expectation was they'd get burnt, and the expectation was also, well, again, you see the bank hitting the skids. Bring you back to the morning, 7am, September the 30th, 2008. The government makes its announcement that it's guaranteeing all debt, including that junior subordinated debt. What was your reaction? I thought it was too much. I thought they went further than they really needed to go. Did it occur to anybody in the office at the time, did it occur to you that there might actually come a point where this guarantee would be called in? I suppose yes is the straight answer. What Ireland had done was announced that all of this bank debt was now its debt. From our perspective, even though, yes, these debts were now fully guaranteed, which meant they were Irish obligations, there was also a tomorrow. When Alex speaks of a bright tomorrow, though, he doesn't mean a debt-cleared, sunlit upland. 
It was the market's expectation that he's referring to, that Ireland would make good on its debts, no matter how painful the process. Oftentimes, I think people think we're, you know, the cute whore idea. The reality is we're very good Northern Europeans, much as we might not like to be. Given that knowledge, given that the Irish state had come and backed this, even in the worst crisis, we knew it was money good. How a category of investor who were expecting to get steamrolled by a global financial crisis came to be guaranteed by the state is just one of those wounds that has scabbed over without ever truly healing. Why weren't the junior bondholders burned? Were the connections between Anglo and the government really only social? Was Fianna Fáil actually bailing out those donors who had paid for past elections? These questions, although answered robustly many times in many places, have become the narrative of the guarantee for many, like our IT consultant and Liveline caller, Andrew Butler, who still has a bad taste in his mouth that hasn't faded. In the in the start of the Celtic Tiger, this this bank may have got them in investment vehicles, may have rewarded them, they may have they may have made money. So, oh. Now it was the banks calling in them favours, calling in them connections. If I was to make the statement, or you heard somebody making the statement, should the bank guarantee was just Fianna Fáil bailing out its builder and banker crony buddies, how strongly would you agree or disagree with that statement? One being completely disagree, ten being Asher, they're all bent, aren't they? I would say six, seven. It had a big factor. It had, a, it had a biggish factor. It- Andrew was an open-eyed sceptic before, but the bank guarantee hardened his views, made him cynical, and the passage of time hasn't softened that. How many Andrews are there who now have no faith in the system and only disdain for its actors? I suppose at the time I would have thought, yes, it's a Fianna Fáil connection, it's the Galway tent, it's, 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 they're all in bed together on this thing and they're all, they're all back each other. There's no doubting Ireland is a, is a very parochial, small country, and there is there is connections that are called in. There is an old boys club. It's not it's it's Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael. It, it's just the nature of the country, and I mean it, it, it. At that time, it was it was more prevalent than it is now. It the wheels did come off it. Favors were called in. There's no point saying that. But what extent it influenced them on them on them very very dark days, yeah. You probably have to drop it back to a six, I suppose. Let me put the kind of the reverse statement to you then. If you heard somebody saying all politicians and public representatives are essentially well-motivated, well-meaning and good people acting in the best interests of the state. Sliding scale of one, are you joking, right up to 10, yeah, I've no problem with that. Again, it would be around a five or six. Politicians are, fa- are people like us all, and, and uh, everyone is corruptible. And I suppose the longer you stay in power, the more likelihood of corruption uh, uh, occurs. Trust in politicians has bumped along the bottom at about 20% in the last decade. Four out of every five of us, when asked, do you think politicians generally tell the truth, answered no. The bank guarantee may be a cause of that, or disbelief in the official version of events, may be a symptom. The crash happened and our world fell apart, absolutely fell apart. We were in dire straits financially. We almost lost our house. We found it very difficult to talk to people. Kathleen Queeley, 
came pretty close to losing everything after 2008. Her response? To start campaigning against the bank guarantee and the repayment of bank bondholders. She was surprised at the number of people, though, who just did not want to know. Irish people are embarrassed about anything private, which is normally private, like uh, your politics, your how much money you have, um, are you in debt? They don't like to shout out loud anything, really. I, I suppose because I was brought up in America, I find that different. I'm a bit more, more outspoken. Kathleen was one of the people who marched in protest against the public paying back bank debt every Sunday in the North Cork village of Ballyhay. The final protest march was held just as the pandemic arrived last year. When they started, though, Kathleen was taken aback by the vicious reaction against them from some people. A new nasty tone had entered public discourse. Uh, I would say derision, laughing at us. Laughing at you? Oh, absolutely. Right to your face. People who would be of our political persuasion in particular, we, we had a lot of their bile. They felt it was absolutely acceptable to speak to us like that. Were you disappointed? All the time we were marching, I was disappointed. Um, I was incredulous that people couldn't understand what we were doing and didn't join us. Toxic debt created toxic opinion. Can we now, with 10 years added wisdom, sort out what is a good expense of emotional energy and what isn't? What are the things worth staying angry over and what is it time to let go of? What if there was a more or less agreed version of the bank guarantees events that answered everyone's questions? Would it take the heat out of the wound or are we past caring? If there is another version of our recent past where we're not the victims of an uncaring political elite, shouldn't we have a listen to that tune too? Colin, how many of your man hours, weeks, days, months, would you say went into accurately figuring out how to tell the story of the bank guarantee? (laughs) Oh, I've no idea. Colin Murphy wrote a play and a screenplay about the guarantee. He has no skin in the game, no axe to grind, nothing to benefit, and genuinely knows more about this event than anyone else I know. I did two plays and adapted both of them for film over the course of about three or four years. And I was obviously doing other stuff a lot of the time, but I, I did kind of live with it for that, for that period. If anyone can have a better stab at an impartial version of what happened, I've yet to meet them. There is a coherent narrative. It doesn't explain everything. There is a level of uh, mystery there. There is a degree of enigma, I think, that comes out of kind of human failing at the heart of it. Does that mean that we just have to accept that some things are really complicated and that we can't do the, what was that film, The Producer? You can't do the 25 words or less synopsis that we all crave nowadays where, you know, we don't really go that much beyond the headline. Uh, Well, I have the 25 words. Oh, you Uh, do? Yeah. There was a global liquidity crunch. The government thought our banks had a temporary liquidity problem and guaranteed them, but they had an insolvency problem. Now, unfortunately, it's 25 words, and two of those words are liquidity and insolvency. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm not greenlighting this project. (laughs) So Colin had another stab at it. The banks, unforgivably, didn't realise how bad their books were. On the night, everybody in that room thought 
the problem was liquidity. The bank guarantee was a chaotic but honest response to that misdiagnosis of the problem. That's 36 words, and Scorsese will probably pass on the script, but it's a good starting point. Feckless banks, refusing to believe their business was bust, said they had cash flow problems. Government should have but didn't know different, so they guaranteed them. 25 words on the button. And as for the conspiracies, was this a fee and a fall bailout of its banker and builder buddies? True or false, Colin? At a societal or class level, you know, like broadly true, it's an indictment of a large group of people. At, at, at an individual level, false. I don't think the people in that room were doing a favour for other people in the room or, or people uh, just outside the room. So what you're saying is that while there's no direct evidence of any favours having been done, the default position of people in the establishment would be to act to save that establishment. Yeah, absolutely. And but like Fina Gael were as bought into the Celtic Tiger momentum and narrative um, as Fina Foyle were. So like, I don't think in that sense it was just Fianna Fáil. I, I, there was certainly a, a, a social circle around the Galway tent, a golden circle, an overlapping kind of elite of the great and the good, people who had rode the Celtic Tiger together on, on the boards of all these institutions. And, and I think certainly these people all thought alike. And maybe that meant that they didn't need to phone each other up and say, look, I got a lot of money in Anglo. You really got to rescue Anglo. But certainly I didn't come across any evidence that that was what happened uh, or that the people in the room were thinking of either their own money or the money of their friends and trying to work out how to protect it. So no evidence of anybody acting corruptly, but plenty of evidence of people for whom the status quo worked acting to preserve that status quo. Yes. And on the night, acting to preserve the status quo was a very rational thing to be trying to do because the status quo was the banking system. Where I think the greatest indictment of that broader group of people, you know, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a social group, as an elite lies, is in the few years and, and, then, and, 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 and then the months up to the bank guarantee where they allowed all this get to this position. Behavioural psychologists tend to believe that once we form a political opinion, there is very little that will separate us from it, no matter what facts come along. Time to put that to the test. I sent Liveline caller Andrew Butler a copy of the interview with Colin Murphy to see if he, on behalf of all of us, could or would change his opinion on the government's motives in setting up the bank guarantee. Give me a little bit of revision, I suppose, on my thought. It moved the dial, but not a lot. I still think that the bank guarantee was a bit of a hoodwink by the bankers and politicians connected that possibly could have been run better. There's no point in saying otherwise. So if somebody was to make the statement to you that the bankers were able to act safely in the knowledge at all times that the state would ultimately be there to mop up the mess for them, would you say, one, no, that's just absolutely not the case, or 10, is that an old school tie you're wearing? That's an eight, nine. That's that's that, that is that's a, that was a given in banking circles and government circles. No banker had any fear that the government was going to let a bank fail. The bankers, the directors, they knew the government was there in the back if this all went pear shaped, and they weren't really concerned. 
So, a sort of begrudging, there was no conspiracy, but neither was there a whole lot of class solidarity. And that might be the bank guarantee's epitaph were we not to find ourselves here 12 years later. Where would we be trying to borrow money now to pay for all of those wage subsidy schemes and pub payments brought on by the pandemic if we had defaulted on our bank's debts back then? So Ireland defaults on its debt. What happens? The big win in defaulting, it's not there. Last word to our bank debt specialist, Alex McKnight. It's not there. And once you do it once, you know, you sort of have that shadow hanging over you forevermore that you will do it again. If we had gone down that road, where do you think we would be now in trying to borrow our way out of the pandemic? Here's the problem, once bitten, twice shy. People would be buying Irish debt, but the NTMA, the Irish Debt Management Agency, wouldn't be able to raise 28 billion euros in debt at an average interest rate of about 50, 60 basis points. If you're lucky, you might be able to raise half that. You'd probably be on negative watch with all of the rating agencies. Let's call it round numbers for 2%, half a billion interest a year. So even now, a dozen years later, it may be too soon to say whether the guarantee was on balance mostly good or mostly bad. No clear reason as yet to change the record. But just as everything before the guarantee fed into it, everything since has flowed from it. And in the next boom-bust broke, the dam breaks. Boombus Broke is produced and presented at home in his living room by Philip Boucher-Hayes, which I hope explains the occasionally less than optimum sound. It is an RTE Radio original podcast. Thanks for listening and stay safe.